All right. So uh, I will tell you that I'm getting feedback from people that are listening to these classes online, and they're very upset that you guys have all the notes and they don't. <laughs> so they're not going to get the notes until the notes are completely finished, and then they'll be edited and, you know, put, put online. Uh, we actually have, I think, five or six pages tonight, and I'm going to try to get through all of them because I want to try to finish the book of Hebrews. We'll be here next Friday, and then the following Friday, of course, we've got our conference, so we'll be gone. I'd like to finish Hebrews up so that we can move on, and I want to get into the book of Revelation. There's a lot of stuff coming out right now by people that are using the book of Revelation wrongly. Supposedly, they think we're in the tribulation. This We haven't seen anything yet compared to the tribulation. But I want to go through that book because while the book of Revelation is very confusing when you just sit down and read through it, once you capture the, the, the method of John, it becomes much more simple. It's actually a picture book. The word revelation means an unveiling, and John keeps saying through the book, I saw and I saw, and everything's in picture book form. So if you relate the pictures that you're seeing to principles and passages that we see earlier in the Old Testament, it all starts to make sense. It is apocalyptic literature as well, so uh, that always uses uh, very strong images. So we'll get into that. Uh, we are going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, does anyone remember where we left off last week? What verse we might have been on? I can't actually recall. Hi, DJ. I wasn't here last week. About eight. That's what I thought. So we'll pick up in verse eight. And uh, we're just going to take a moment to pray once again and ask God to bless our time together and open his word to us. So if you'll join me. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to have the opportunity to come together and open your word. And uh, Father, though the world uh, wants to discount and discredit your word, all we have to do is look at prophecies that were proclaimed about your son 800 to 1,000, in some cases 2,000 years before he came. We know that every one of those prophecies, over 300 prophecies concerning his first coming, were fulfilled literally, accurately, and to the detail. So, Father, we are sure that the prophecies that speak of his second coming are going to be fulfilled with the same accuracy. And we recognize as we look around in this world that uh, things are really not normal. Uh, we are living in a time of tremendous upheaval and confusion, and we need an anchor for our souls in the time in which we live, and that anchor is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for his faithfulness, thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf, that he paid the penalty for our sins so that by a simple childlike act of faith, we could become the children of God. So I pray for each one who's here this evening. Uh, we come from different backgrounds, different uh, areas of life, probably carrying different burdens, questions, uh, concerns, whatever the case may be. And only God, the Holy Spirit, can meet those needs. And so 
we do pray that he will break for us the bread of life and nourish our souls according to our need. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Remember again that the author of the book, which I take to be the Apostle Paul, and I've stated the reason for this, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Paul, uh, Peter speaks about an epistle that Paul wrote to Hebrew believers. Um, if this is not that epistle, then we're missing a book of the Bible because Peter calls it Scripture. I do believe there's a reason Paul did not put his name to the book because he was persona non grata at the time. Uh, the Jews were very, very hostile to him, and therefore he simply did not include his name. But we see the hallmarks of his writing, his theology, really running all the way through the book. And the conclusion of the book is no exception because all through his epistles, we find faith, hope, and love. Uh, I don't know how many times I've counted. Probably there are some that I've even missed. Sometimes they're not real close together. Uh, but you see that those themes running through because that really, in essence, is the spiritual life. Faith, looking at what Christ has done for us at the cross. Hope, looking for what the scriptures promise us in the future. And love being the power uh, to live in an evil world uh, in a genuine way and in a beneficial way, not only to ourselves, but to others. So chapter 11 of Hebrews is the by faith chapter. You remember he quoted Habakkuk 2.4 uh, in the 38th verse of chapter 10, the just shall live by faith. So he's picking up that by faith theme and running with it through the 11th chapter. When we get to chapter 12, which I hope we'll be in before we're done tonight, we're getting into the hope phase, looking forward with eager anticipation to the things that God has promised us. And then finally in chapter 13, we'll get into the aspect of love. Uh, remember, and we'll go into detail about this, but when the Bible talks about love, it is not talking about an emotion. It's talking about a decision. It's talking about a sacrificial attitude. The love of Christ compels us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, and when the love of Christ truly does compel us and drive us forward through life, uh, it is a reflection of his willingness to come and humble himself to sacrifice on his behalf for the benefit of those around him. And we'll see all that in due time. So in Hebrews eleven eight, from verses 8 to verse 22, we look at the faith of the Jewish patriarchs. It might be help, helpful if I just draw a quick picture on the board. As we look at history, we look at a timeline from eternity past to eternity future. I don't know if I can get this back a little more for you guys might be able Thank to you. see oh, it. Yeah, that's much better. The center of God's plan for history is the cross of Christ. That's the focal point of everything. The Old Testament is broken up basically into two sections from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. We have the time of the Gentiles. There were no Jews because Abraham was the first Jew. With the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, we have the age of Israel. The age of Israel goes up to and encompasses the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
with his death, burial, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes down and begins a new age, which we call the church age. We're no longer under the old covenant. Doesn't mean the Old Testament is not important because in the Old Testament, everything that is now a reality is anticipated and concealed. But we're living really in the age of the Holy Spirit, uh, in the church age, and the church age will end one day, we hope very soon, with the rapture of the church. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet them in the air. That reintroduces the last seven years, which are postponed, of the age of Israel. The age of Israel is not complete. It was interrupted because they rejected their Savior. And therefore, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, God has set the nation of Israel aside. And the church age is in full swing until the church is removed. This is why when you read the book of Revelation in the first three chapters, the word church is mentioned 19 times. As soon as you see... In chapter 4, verse 1, the call come up here and you see the church in heaven. The church is never mentioned again from chapter 6 to chapter 19. That's the tribulation period. We are not going to be here. You don't have to worry about the beast. You don't have to worry about the mark of the beast. You don't have to worry about all the other things that are going to be a part of that time. That doesn't mean we're going to get an easy ride. We have no guarantees uh, the church has suffered persecution throughout the 2,000 years of its existence, and that's going to continue. Christ will return, we're told in Revelation 19, will return with him. At what is known as the second advent, the battle of Armageddon is fought. The sword of his mouth goes forth to slay his enemies, and then we enter into the kingdom age. So you can see why the author is breaking up these segments the way he is. And in 18 to 22, uh, we're actually looking at the patriarchs of Israel back here at the beginning. So I'm going to read through this. I'm going to go fairly rapidly. And I would just suggest if you have questions, if I go too quickly over something and don't make it clear, shoot your hand up. I'm always happy to take questions. So beginning in verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. A lot of us don't know where we're going, but that's not a good thing. For Abraham, it was a willingness to go because God called him, and I would encourage you to go back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and pick up what was going on at that point. God basically called Abraham to do three things. In verse 9 and 10, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10 says, for he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Three things that Abraham did by faith in these verses. He answered the call of God to go. He didn't know where he was going. He lived as a pilgrim. In other words, he went into a land that God said, this is your inheritance, and he lived as if he had no inheritance in it. He lived as a pilgrim, a sojourner, and the reason he did that is because he knew that one day there would be a city there. 
And that city would be the city that God created, which we will see in Revelation, is the new Jerusalem. But Abraham wasn't alone. Fortunately, Sarah came alongside him. She was doubtful in the beginning. She laughed about the idea that she could have a child in her old age. But it says in verse 11, by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. I want you to stop and think about this. When she trusted the promise, her faith received strength to do something supernatural. And that's really true for all of us. We can do things that are impossible to human intelligence, human strength, human endurance by faith. Because faith lays hold of the power of God. It's not our strength. It wasn't her strength. It was the rejuvenating strength of the Spirit of God. So she received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who promised. I want to focus on this because it's not what you believe. It's not how long you believe. It always comes down to who you believe. Our faith is in a person. I'll point this out in just a moment, but faith is only as strong as its working object. I can believe in a turnip, but that turnip has no power to do anything for me. I can believe in an image or an idol, as Nan and I have seen in India. But as Isaiah tells us, those images can't speak, can't talk, can't see. They're dumb idols. They have no power. Someone can say, I believe in my spirit animal, and they want, into, want to get into native Americanism, and so they have a spirit animal. And, you know, you, you may believe in a hawk. Well, that's great, but that hawk can do nothing for you. People say, well, as long as you believe, that's all that counts. No, faith means nothing if the object of your faith is incapable of fulfilling the hopes of that faith. So we'll touch on that pretty quickly here in just a moment. Notice she judged him faithful who had promised. Faith relies on the faithfulness of God. That's the only reason it has any power. Someone says, I'm trying to work up stronger faith. The only way to get stronger faith is for us to have a greater understanding of the object of our faith. The more we know of him, the more we understand his word, his plan, his purpose, the greater our faith is going to be. Verse 12 says, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And you can go back to Genesis 15, and you remember God told Abraham to look up at the night sky, and he saw the stars, and he said, can you number them? Literally, he said, can you name them? Because the Bible tells us that God has named every star that is up there in the sky. And then he said to Abraham, so shall your seed be. And I think there's a reason that the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore are used because one speaks of a physical earthly people, the children of Israel. The other speaks of a spiritual heavenly people, and that is you and I. And so he now develops the idea of the power of faith in verses 13 to 16. He says, these all, Abraham, Sarah, uh, Isaac, Jacob, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. In other words, 
That city he waited for was not fulfilled. That land was not possessed by him. And above all, the greatest promise of all was what? The promise that began back there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, You might remember that I told you about a guy, uh, John, I can't think of his name right offhand. He was a very brilliant mathematician, and he set out to disprove the Bible. And the way he was going to disprove the Bible was to show that prophecies, the prophecies are phony. Of the 300 plus prophecies of Christ's first coming, he took eight. And he investigated carefully those eight prophecies given hundreds, in some cases, thousands of years before Christ came, such as the time of his coming. We're told that in the book of Daniel such as the place of his coming, Bethlehem and Nazareth. Imagine that, two separate places. Such as the way that he would grow up, the fact that he would uh, have a certain ministry, the fact that he would die on the cross and so on and so forth. By the time he concluded his study, he said the chance of only those eight prophecies being fulfilled accidentally or by chance was one in ten to the 17th power. Now, most of us are not mathematical enough to figure that out, so he said, I'll make it easy for you. If you cover the state of Texas a foot deep in silver dollars and mark one of them and send somebody into the state, their chance of finding that one silver dollar would be one in 10 to the 17th power. And yet people say, well, it was just an accident uh, or someone just saw the prophecies and claimed to be the guy Well, it's pretty hard to claim to be the guy when you're born in the place he was born at the time he was going to be born. You go into Egypt, you come back to Nazareth, on and on and on, and then get crucified. All for what? So I can pretend to be a false messiah. (laughs) Not a very good path to take. So these all looked for the promises, saw them afar off. They were assured of them. They embraced them. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I don't know about you, but when I think about death, and it's getting closer for all of us, and none of us are guaranteed tomorrow, to me it is a wonderful comfort to know I have an eternal home, to know I don't have to fear death, to know where I'm going, to answer that question, where will you spend eternity? If you have that down, you have already conquered 90% of the problems that you'll face in this life. So they died in faith. And he says in verse 14, those who say such things declare plainly that they are seeking a homeland. Think of death as the door that leads you home. How many of you are afraid to go home at night? How many of you, if you've traveled for a while and you come back home and and there is the door and you go, I don't know. I, (laughs) I, I don't know if I can go in there. No, you go in with eager anticipation because you're home. That multiplied a million times is what going through the door of death to our eternal home is going to be. Verse 15, truly if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. The Jews did this with Egypt. They were constantly thinking of Egypt. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to the leeks and the garlics. I want to go back to slavery. Anything would be better than being in this wilderness. And yet how many of us look back and say, oh, I'd love to go back to to drugs and sex and, you know, whatever 
our lives were beforehand, drunkenness. I, I can't wait to go back to those days when I was afraid of the dark, uh, those days when death terrified me, when I saw a funeral and I would go to a funeral and I'd have that, that gripping fear in the back of my conscience that said, one day you're going to die. This guy is here today. You may be there tomorrow. Where are you going to go? And I didn't know. What a wonderful thing to have all of that gone. Verse 16 says, Now they desire a better that is a heavenly country, and therefore, and I find this absolutely amazing, God is not ashamed to be called their God. With as much as we stumble and stagger and falter and fail and fall down and get up over and over and over again, and as we read about these heroes, they did the same thing. There's a song that somebody put out some years ago, and I, I can't remember what it is uh, or how the words go, but basically the chorus of the song is, we fall down, we get up. We fall down, we get up. We fall down, we get up. And the whole idea is it's not how many times you fall down, it's how many times you get back up. That's what makes the difference. He comes back to Abraham because he wants to talk about his greatest test. Notice in verses 17 through 19, by faith Abraham, and you'll remember this from Genesis chapter 22, and of course James picks up on it in James chapter 2 and verse 21. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, what was the test? God said, take your only begotten son, the one through whom the promised seed, the savior of the world is going to come and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And by the way, if you've never heard this, Mount Moriah is where Christ was crucified. Same place. So 2,000 years before Christ came into this world, before he went to the cross, died, was buried, and rose again, God allowed Abraham and Isaac to play out the crucifixion story. When Abraham was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, here's the promise, you have an only begotten son, the Savior of the world is going to come through him, and I want you to put him to death. You know, what would we be doing? Whining. Why would God lay this on me? How could God do this? This makes no sense at all. It's not logical. I must not be listening to God. It must be somebody else's voice that's talking to me. He offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. What does Paul tell us in Galatians 3.16? He did not say seeds as many. He said seed meaning one, and that was Christ. Verse 19, he concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Think about this. Abraham takes his son, lays him on the altar, fully prepared to sacrifice him, God provides the ram caught in the bush, which he substitutes. There's the idea of substitutionary death. Isaac, in a figure, is raised from the dead, and you have 2,000 years before Christ came a portrayal of the whole crucifixion story. Pretty amazing. I would encourage you to go to Romans 4, 13 to 25. Uh, this is in your notes there on page 67. 
Go and look at how the Apostle Paul reveals to us the inner struggle that Abraham went through. It was quite a struggle. We don't have time, of course, to go there. We will move on in verse 20 with Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph very quickly. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Could I just point out to you that there's a misconception that Esau was an unbeliever? That is not true. If you go back into the Old Testament, you'll notice not only was he blessed by Isaac, but in Genesis chapter 25, when he dies, it says he was gathered to his people. Unbelievers are not gathered to their people. Unbelievers are alone. You know, I hear people say, well, when I die, I'll go to hell with all my friends and we'll drink and party. <laughs> One of the things that makes hell hell is total isolation. Total darkness <clears throat> with eternity to think about the fact. You heard about the plan of salvation. You heard that Christ came and died for you. You heard that salvation was a free gift. You heard that all you had to do was trust in Christ. You hardened your heart. You hardened your mind. You refused. You rebelled. Now you got eternity to think about. It. I don't know about you, but I would not want to try to accept that challenge. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on his staff. If you go back to Genesis 48, you can read about this where he got ready to put his hands on the two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He was going to put his right hand on Manasseh and he changed them. And you'll remember how Jacob tried to shift his hands back or Joseph tried to shift his hands back and he said, no, no, this is the way it's supposed to be because there's a principle that runs through the entire Old Testament. The elder shall serve the younger. Isn't that interesting? The elder will serve the younger. True of Jacob and Esau, true of Ephraim and Manasseh, true of Ishmael and Isaac. What do you think God's trying to get across to us? Our elder brother became our servant. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. So that principle runs through many places in the Old Testament. Verse 22, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. When you go up out of Egypt, he said, carry my bones, bury me in the promised land. Why? Because he believed the promise that God was going to lead them up out of Egypt. If you look on your page 68, and because these are all written out, I don't need to go slow for you, but I want to just pause for a moment and talk about faith. Whenever we take a topic of the Bible and we develop that particular topic, we call it a doctrine. Remember that all Scripture is given, is profitable for doctrine. And the word doctrine scares some people because we think of indoctrination. But doctrine simply means teaching. So we're taking a teaching about a topic. And so I want to just point out a few things very quickly in the doctrine of faith. As I say, they're on your notes so I can go quickly. Number one, faith comes by hearing and believing the word of God. That comes from Romans 10 and verse 17. When you hear the word of God, every soul has a decision to make. I believe it, I reject it. Every time we hear the word of God and reject it, our heart gets harder and harder and harder. There comes a point 
of no return. There comes a point where the scripture says your conscience is seared as with a hot iron. You're like a cow with a brand on it. There's no feeling, there's no receptiveness, no responsiveness left. Terrible place to be. Number two, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 1 John 2, verses 4 and 5. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes that Jesus is the Christ. Third, faith must have a working object. I mentioned this earlier. The working object must be capable of fulfilling the hope of faith. Only Jesus Christ. You know, there are some people that believe in the Bible. I've known of people that treated the Bible like a uh, lucky rabbit's foot. It's, it's like, oh, if something's going wrong, I'll, I'll sleep with my Bible under my pillow. That's not going to do a thing for you. This is a book. It's a book of information. The power is who the book is about. So we have to get through that superstition. Some people have kind of the same mentality about the name of Jesus. Oh, if something bad happens, I'll just call the name of Jesus and everything will be hunky-dory. That never worked for any of the people in biblical times. Never worked for the Apostle Paul, who was hated, persecuted, stoned, maligned. Why didn't he just say, Jesus, and everything, <laughs> everything goes well. It doesn't work that way. That's, that's taking the name of Jesus and turning it into a, a magic wand or something. The power of the name of Jesus is for you and I to endure anything that God leads us into with the knowledge that he wouldn't put us there if he would not enable and empower us to go through it. So it's important that we don't turn it into a superstition. Number four, it is impossible to please God by any other means than faith. We saw that in Hebrews 11.6. Number five, Abraham is the standard example of saving faith. Genesis 15.6, Romans 4.3, Galatians 3.6-9. Abraham believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The word accounted means placed to his account. God's righteousness was placed to his account because his sins were placed to the account of Jesus Christ. By the way, when we look at this little diagram that I put up here, it's important to remember people in Old Testament times from Adam forward were saved exactly. People after the cross are saved. They're saved. They looked forward to the coming of the Savior. We look back. That's the only difference. Salvation is always by faith in the promised Savior. Number six, faith is not static, it is dynamic. It grows and progresses into the works of service. If we're living by faith, a lot of people get confused about the book of James. James says faith without works is dead. There are people that built a whole false doctrine on this. If I don't see your faith working, then you're not really saved. That's not, we're not fruit inspectors. What James is talking about is for those who have already believed and received eternal life, that faith should be growing, developing, and serving. And he uses the example, if someone's uh, poorly clothed, if they're hungry, and you say, oh, brother, I'll pray for you and send them on their way, and you don't do anything for them, your face is good as dead. Okay? 
So faith is dynamic. Point seven, faith leads us to spiritual maturity that we might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the whole Romans 8, 28 through 30, Romans 12, 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18. All right, so you can look those passages up. I would encourage you to do it. And now we're going to look at the faith of Moses. In verses 23 to 29, we see seven decisions that changed the course of history. These seven decisions were decisions that were made by faith. So what I'm going to do is read verse 23 to 29, and then I'll point out the seven decisions. By faith, Moses, when he was born, that's pretty good to have faith when you're born, but he's actually talking about the faith of his parents, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. Literally, the Greek here says he was a child of the city. You say, what city? Well, Abraham was looking for a city, and so was everyone that followed in his path. We are looking for an eternal home, and they knew the promise to Abraham that they would be in the land of Egypt 400 years, and they knew that at the end of 400 years, God would raise up a deliverer to bring them out, and somehow the Spirit of God gave them the insight. When they looked into the face of that child, they said, this is the child. This is the deliverer. They were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. This goes to your question earlier about the trophies, for he was looking to the reward. He knew that God is faithful to re reward those who live by faith. Verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What an absolutely amazing verse. If every one of us could live our lives with all the chaos and confusion going on in this world, seeing him who is invisible. People say all the time, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have seen. Well, yeah, all of us would love to have watched the Lord move and serve and, and work mighty miracles and everything else. But what does the Bible tell us? What did Jesus say to Thomas after he was resurrected? Because you've seen me, you believe. How blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. And that includes each and every one of us. Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Go back and read Exodus 12 for that background. And then verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. I want you to stop and think in these verses, here's what we see about faith. Number one, there's the heritage of faith in verse 23 that comes from his parents. What great influence parents and grandparents can have on children and grandchildren by simply living their lives by faith. When Moses' mother took him back in after Pharaoh's daughter found him in the ark in the Nile and nursed him to the age of weaning, which in those days was about four years, they somehow 
by the age of four instilled in him a sense of who he was, a sense of why he was here, and a willingness to make decisions that were based on that. That's pretty amazing. So there's the heritage of faith in verse 23, the identification of faith. In verse 24, he could have been called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, chose to identify with the children of Israel. In verse 25, the sacrifice of faith. He was willing to suffer affliction. He was willing to give up the treasures of Egypt because eternal reward was more important. In verse 26, we see the priority of faith. As he's looking forward to those promises of rewards. In verse 27, the focus of faith, seeing him who is invisible. In verse 28, the obedience of faith. He kept the Passover. He did exactly what God told him to do. And then the seventh, the historical impact of faith. And this is, I find, very interesting. This section starts with his parents, and then we read by faith, Moses, 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 and we come down then to verse 29, and it's by faith they, and a whole generation of people, two and a half million people to the best that we can establish, were impacted by the faith of this man. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of effect in the world, in history? And by the way, we'll never know. How many of you have ever heard of that great evangelist named Mr. Kimmel? You ever hear of Mr. Kimmel? Nobody ever heard of Mr. Kimmel. How many of you have ever heard of a guy named D.L. Moody? Did you know that D.L. Moody is in the direct line of people that he impacted that led Billy Graham to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? You know where it all started? In a shoe shop with a shoe salesman by the name of Mr. Kimmel who won D.L. Moody to Christ. D.L. Moody had an impact on Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday had an impact. And it, it just, there's, there's a, a paper that actually follows person to person. Uh, Spurgeon is included. The impact of a humble shoe salesman talking to a poor, uneducated boy D.L. Moody only had a sixth grade education, led him to Christ and shook the world. Don't worry about whether anything you do is known. It's known to God. That's all that matters. Just be faithful. And by the way, there will probably be some you'll touch that you'll never know and you'll meet them in eternity and you'll be amazed at what happened. All right, we're going to have to... Where are we at here, time? Oh man, time's almost up. Now we're going to move in verses 30 to 40 from Joshua to the prophets. We've passed Moses now. We're going into the conquest of the land. By faith, verse 30, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By the way, some of us have been there. And you can see where the walls have fallen down, and you can also see that there is one section that didn't fall. Rahab's house. Her house was on the wall. Verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab. People often question, how come the Bible keeps calling her a harlot even into the New Testament? I think the reason is because the Bible wants to remind us that there is no depth that you can fall to that God cannot rescue you from. When James speaks of Rahab in James chapter 2, he calls her Rahab the harlot. 
Rahab the harlot did not perish with those that did not believe when she received the spies with peace. And the interesting thing about Rahab, there are four great things that happened. They're not mentioned here, but it's important enough for me to share with you. Number one, she confessed her faith in the God of Israel. You can go back and see that in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 11. Number two, her faith resulted in works. James 2.25 tells us she hid the spies. Number three, she led her entire family to faith, Joshua 6 and verse 23. And number four, Matthew 1.5 tells us she was included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Is that awesome or what? Mm -hmm. From a harlot to an ancestress of the Savior of the world. Pretty amazing. Don't discount what God might be doing with you because she probably didn't know all that would come. And you and I don't either. God takes little things and makes them universal, massive. Verse 32, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell. <laughs> I love this. How many volumes could be written about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets? Books and books and books and books. He says the time would fail me. And I want you to notice that we got Barak or Barak, Samson, Jephthah. These guys were pretty questionable guys. <laughs> like one guy said, this is not the Hall of Heroes. This is the rogues gallery. And yet... Think of some of the sins of David that were every bit as bad as anything any of those guys did. And I find great comfort in that when I find myself flat on my face, getting up again and dusting myself off. It's very comforting to me to review how the Lord dealt with Peter and how God dealt with these people. Because you see, faith changes everything. Makes all the difference in the world. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he said, out there in the world are extortioners, extortioners and drunkards and people involved in witchcraft and people involved in adultery and, and all kinds of sins. And then he says, and such were some of you. And I love that verse. I think it's 1 Corinthians 6.20. Such were some of you. And you know the interesting thing to me? If you read through 1 Corinthians, some of them were still doing the same things. He said, you're no longer identified by that. That's not your identity. That's a false identity. Because your faith has given you an identity that is far above any of that. In verses 33 to 35, we see people who won great victories. Notice that it says... Through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. They became valiant in battle and they turned to flight the armies, the aliens. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be one of those people? Mm -hmm. But you know what? God's plan is not for all of us to have the same experience. And we can go back in the Old Testament and we can identify many of these events but I want you to notice as it moves on, it says in verse 35, women receive their dead raised to life. Oh, how we'd love to see someone who dies raised to life. They couldn't wait to see Lazarus come out of the tomb, and when Lazarus came out, he was mad. How do I know that? 
He was in paradise. You think if you were in paradise, you'd want to come back to a world of sin, sorrow, suffering, and affliction? Just imagine, Lazarus comes back, raised by the Lord, then he ends up getting cancer and he lingers for three years and dies. Would you pick that? I think not. But notice the little word others, verse 35. And there are two different words in Greek for others. Heteros means others of a different kind. In other words, a completely different category. This word alelos is a word that means others of the same kind, just as valuable to God, just as precious in His sight, just as great in their faith, but God didn't choose for them to overthrow kingdoms and win battles and have people raised from the dead. No, the others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. Tradition tells us Isaiah was put in a hollow log and sawn in two. They were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. We don't get to pick our path. God chooses our path. We're all given the same command, live by faith. Just live by faith. He says in verse 38, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth and all of these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. Do you realize how fortunate we are that we are the recipients of the promise? They looked forward through the mists of time, through the scattered promises that they had and they had to come to conclusions that gave them a consistency and stability and strength in their faith. We look back to historical reality. We read about his birth. We read about his life. We read about his ministry. We, we know so much more than they know. How much stronger ought we to be? And yet, how many times do they put us to shame in the faith that they showed? Verse 40 says, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect, the idea is that they should not be complete without us. What's the better thing? Well, if you look at the bottom of your page 69, a quick review of what we've seen already in Hebrews, we have a better priest, we have a better sanctuary, we have a better sacrifice, we have a better covenant, we have a better hope, and we have better promises. God provided something better for us. And that leads us to the therefore. It's too bad Holly's not here, and I hope that we'll all lift Holly up. She's not doing very well tonight. Uh, but I threw out the idea one time to go through the book of Hebrews and look at all the therefores. And Holly did it. I think she found 13. She may have missed a couple. But the word therefore always has the idea, okay, I've given you a whole lot of information what does it mean? What's the value? Let's take everything that we've learned and let's see if we can put it into practice in our life. There's always some kind of a conclusion with the word therefore. The little, <coughs> the little jingle, boy, he is out. 
I have that effect on a lot of people when I teach Bible class, you know? They get their best nap during Bible class. Um, the little jingle that you hear in Bible school is whenever you see the word therefore, look and see what it's there for, because it's linking together an argument that has now come to a conclusion that he's ready to build something on that foundation. So therefore, and we're gonna go through verse 11 quickly. Therefore, we also, meaning we as well as them, we're part of those others now that are connected to them by faith. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and the cloud of witnesses in the, uh, in the ancient Greek referred to those who had run their race or finished their co uh, competition, and they're up in the stands now, and they're looking down. And, you know, people argue, can they see us? Can they not see us? Some people are violently pro on the question. Some are violently negative on the question. I don't know why people get so worked up about things that we can't really answer in the first place. But the main point is that they testify to us by their lives that we can live by faith too. We can face hardship. We can face difficulty. We can go through heartache. We can, we can go through those times in life when nothing seems to make sense and we can realize God is in control. He is guiding my ship. He's His hands on the tiller and I will come to safe harbor. So we also, let us lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily ensnares us. The picture here again from the Greek athletics they used to run with weights or do broad jump with weights. By the way, the records, and I've read some of the records that were held in ancient in the ancient Greek games, their broad jump guys jump farther than we do. They ran faster than we run. They lifted weights that no one today can even lift. But everything they did, they did with weights. So when it came time for the race, they laid down the weights, they took off their robes, and the idea here is, is there something that is a weight that is holding you down in your life? Is there something that you need to get rid of that may entangle you? This is the idea. And he says, the sin that so easily entangles us, and that's different for every person. It was one thing for Samson. It was something else for Gideon. We all have that entangling sin in our life. We need to lay it aside, and here's the focus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Stay in your lane. Don't worry about the other runners. We're not in competition with anyone else. We have a race that God has placed before us. And how do we do it? Just like Moses saw him who is invisible, verse 2, looking unto Jesus. The word looking literally means looking away, getting our eyes off ourselves, getting our eyes off others, get our eyes off circumstances. Whatever may be our distraction, we need to look away from it and get our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls him the author and the finisher of our faith. The word author was used as captain in Hebrews 2.10. It literally means a prince leader. He is our king, but he walked the path ahead of us is the idea. The author and the finisher, at the end of our race, we run into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
For consider him, this is the third time we're told in Hebrews to consider him, and the word means bear down with your mind. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. It's very easy when we just get our, our eyes on our own test trials and difficulties to feel like life's not fair, God's asking too much of me, I don't have the strength to, to do what I'm being asked to do. And he says, hey, you dwell on Jesus, you, you bear down with your mind on the life he lived, on the death he died, you'll find out your race is actually pretty easy. Verse 4, you have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. Many of them would. Many of them would die before very long in the Holocaust that hit Jerusalem as the Romans came down and surrounded the city. And in 70 AD, the city was leveled. Not only the city, the nation, the nation of Israel ceased to exist by 73 AD. Some of you have seen pictures or you may have been there to Masada where the Jews made their final stand against the Romans. By 73 AD, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. Verse 5 says, You have forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as unto sons. This is a quote, by the way, from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. There's nobody that escapes divine discipline. Why? Because every child of God he loves. What kind of a father who loves his child and wants him to grow up to be a person of character and a person of honor and integrity doesn't correct them, doesn't rebuke them, doesn't discipline them. And so God works in our lives to correct and to discipline us and we actually have three different kinds of discipline, or I should say three levels of discipline contained in verses 5 and 6. They're in the middle of your page 71. Rebuke refers to verbal correction. See 2 Timothy 3.16. The word chastening literally means child training, and it includes the use of the rod. You know, in the book of Proverbs, it says, spare the rod and spoil the child. I heard a pastor one time saying, don't worry, it's not going to kill him, beat him. <laughs> he, he didn't mean that in a brutal way. But, but use the rod of discipline. And then scourging is a real, this is mastigoi, this means the same as the scourging of Jesus Christ. It means literally to take a whip to the person. Severe and painful discipline. You know what? God uses all three of these. Has he ever rebuked you? Sometimes he does it when we look into his word and we sense that rebuke. Sometimes it comes when someone else says, hey, you know, you're, you're not really being faithful here. You really need to pull yourself up and, and get back in line. And then the chastening is when life gets painful. We choose wrong decisions. And you know what God's most common rod is? The consequences of bad decisions. He doesn't just make them magically go away. We have to go through them. If we go on a downward path for a long time, just like the prodigal son, we're going to have to come back up that same path. And it's going to be painful. 
And sometimes he gets really serious and he pulls out the whip because we really need. Read about David in Psalm 32 and Psalm 50. Ask yourself if you've ever been in a situation of that painful of divine discipline. That's the scourge. But God is faithful to discipline all because he loves all. If you endure chastening, he says, God is dealing with you as a son. For what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? If you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, you're illegitimate and not sons. In other words, you profess faith, but it's not genuine. I've often had people say, well, I look at this person and I don't see fruit in their life. And I say, never forget one of the fruits of the Christian life is discipline. And while I may not see in their life the good fruits that I'd like to see, I can see plenty of evidence that God is disciplining that person. When every way they turn is a dead end, everything they try doesn't work. Decision after decision after decision comes crashing in on their head. And I look and I go, yeah, I think their face genuine. It looks to me like God has given them the woodshed treatment. And he's faithful to do that to all of us. Verse 9 says, Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us. What kind of father did you have? And how severe was he? I can tell you my dad was extremely strict. And I won't go into it because today it will be called child abuse. But I had a human father who corrected us and we paid them respect. And by the way, I respected my dad more than anybody on the earth. Still do to this day. He was always my hero. He is a giant in my eyes. Although sometimes I wanted to shoot him, but <laughs> you know, you get to those teenage years and you think, I'm not going to put up with this any longer, but. I'm 16 and I'm taking my car and I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shall we not, middle of verse 9, shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father and spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us, 18, 20 years, as seemed best to them. They didn't always know the best way. But he does it for our profit so that we may be partakers of his holiness. And guys, everything in your heart, in your soul, in your mind that this world is lacking can be supplied in one word, holiness. Holiness doesn't just mean purity. It means the absence of evil, which creates all kinds of sorrow and suffering and affliction. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means lacking in nothing. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have one day on this earth where you felt like there is absolutely nothing lacking? I've never had a day like that, have you? That's what holiness is all about. It's not about self-righteousness. It's not about smugness. Holiness is not knowing how to carry your Bible or how to look down on other people. Holiness is when you're whole. And the more we grow and the more we learn and the more we absorb the principles and the truths of God's Word, the more it becomes an unconscious state of being. We don't think to ourselves, well, I'm really getting holy because the minute you think that, you're not. <laughs> it's like humility, you know, it's the one thing, the minute you know you have it, you lost it. <laughs> Boy, aren't I humble. It's gone. It just becomes a way of life. 
and it impacts those around us. Verse 11 says, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. I can attest to that. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, we can choose to be trained by it or not. We can choose to accept the training or not. But when we choose to accept the training, it brings us to a place of righteousness, which simply means being in a right relationship with God. And when we come to that place where he is as real to us as more real than anyone we know, his comfort, his presence, his power is so real to us, what do we find? Peace. Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He tells us in Romans 5, 8 through 10 that those who reject Christ are at war with God. Not a good place to be. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 5, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists. The word resist literally means to wage war. He wages war against the proud. Nobody's ever won that challenged him to a fight. He's going to win every fight. How much better to humble ourselves and accept his counsel and correction and find that pleasant and peaceable fruit that, is, that makes life a joy, whatever may be going on. I don't know what you anticipate for the future. I think things are gonna get a lot worse. We couldn't have imagined two years ago what we would go through in the last two years. I think things are gonna get a lot worse. You know what? That doesn't trouble me at all. Because the same Savior that carried me through the last two will carry me through the next however many I have, maybe six months, who knows. That's the comfort and the confidence that we can have if we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And we are at verse 11 of chapter 12, and that is the goal that I had for the night. How about that? Let's, let's pray and we're done. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for each one that came out tonight. I know, Father, that we have busy lives with many demands. I know it takes a certain amount of commitment and dedication to set apart a time, even though uh, it's so joyful to gather together with other people, but sometimes the demands of life make it difficult. I'm just thankful for each one. And I pray that something from your word has spoken to each and every one of us a word of comfort, a word of strengthening, a word of correction, whatever it may be, according to our need. And I just pray that we are just that little bit closer to your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the time that we spent together tonight. We thank you. We praise you for all these things. We do pray for Holly. We ask, Father, that you'll touch her body. We pray that you'll restore health and strength, joy, peace. In the meantime, as... She undergoes affliction. Help her to keep her eyes fixed on you and rest in your perfect plan. For all these things, we pray, we thank you, we praise you in Christ's name, amen.